Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. Let's read. <clears throat> and the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake was slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the, 20, the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they shouldest give reward, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your providence. You always provide for us, you watch over us, you give to us the things that we need. And most importantly, you've given to us such a great salvation, that you've provided your only Son, that he may take our place, or he did take our place on the cross, and that by simple faith in him, you have given us a gift that we could never repay. Lord, we ask this morning that what words are spoken may give glory to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ, that his name may be lifted up this morning and that our hearts may be turned evermore to you, that we may submit ourselves to you and love you and cherish you for who you are. Thank you once again for your precious word this morning. We ask that our hearts may be taught and ready for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who's, uh, who's ever been through an earthquake? Anyone experienced an earthquake before? Big ones, small ones, yeah? Yeah? Good ones, huh? I, I, I thought that most of us would have experienced some sort of uh, tremor or earthquake during our lifetime because they're, they're actually quite common. Here in Melbourne, we, uh, we tend to have them occasionally, um, but they're always very mild. I mean, Frankston's just experienced an earthquake just recently of, of I think, two on the Richter scale and, and uh, probably shook a few things and, and kept, woke up maybe some people. My clearest recollection of an earthquake was when I was younger. It would have been about uh, 25 years ago. And I remember it not because of what happened to me, not, not because I, I experienced anything, it was because of what my grandfather experienced. It, was, it must have happened during the night and the door, the door to his bedroom was shaking and it annoyed him somewhat. So he, thinking that it was some draft coming through the house, decided to get up and he grabbed a sock, wedged it in the door, between the door and the actual, uh, and the frame, and closed the door, had a listen, wasn't shaking anymore, went back to death, thought it was a draft. The next morning they told him it was an earthquake. So 
remember, in any earthquake, keep a spare set of socks available. They may come in handy for you. But on a more serious note, earthquakes can be a devastating thing. Um, millions of people have lost their lives in this world through earthquakes. And, and some of the greatest earthquakes have been experienced in places like China, Russia, uh, more recently Italy. Um, Italy's been rocked by an earthquake in a place called Aquila, which is around the centre of Italy, and, and basically demolished most of an ancient town, which is uh, a lot of it was uh, built by the Romans. Uh, it, most of it's gone now. Um, but millions of people have been through terrible uh, times in earthquakes. And for those of you who've been through an earthquake, you would probably understand that the greatest danger is not the ground shaking. And as some of you look up now, you would realise that in an earthquake, the most dangerous thing is something falling on your head. Your home falling on top of you, buildings falling down, not necessarily the ground shaking, but it's the loss of foundation. It's the foundations moving that cause what's been built to come down. And as we look at Revelation and we see what happens now, we are witnessing, we are, uh, we are seeing the crumbling of an empire that's been built by Satan. Satan has built or attempted to build an empire in this world, but he's built it on shifting sand. And just as God now we see when the two witnesses are taken up into heaven, causes an earthquake to happen, it's a, very much like a picture of Satan's empire crumbling down. See, Satan has built his empire on the shifting sands of envy and covetousness. He's reached his goals through lies, deceit and hatred, and he's been able to trick the world into following him without even realising it. I remember watching a video once, many years ago, about the way Satan is able to use ungodly music to influence people. And how he was influencing the people who wrote those songs and sang those songs. And they interviewed, as part of that video, they actually interviewed uh, the leader of the Church of Satanism. Okay, and, and the question was, what does a person have to do to be a Satanist? Now, mind you, there are Christian churches, there are other types of churches, but there are churches that literally worship Satan. Okay, and they go all out and they, they have their own Bible as well. And this fellow was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the Satanic Bible? Because they have their own commandments too. And this one simple one. This fellow asked, is it to love and follow Satan? No. Is it to perform sacrifices to him? No. Is it to blaspheme God? No. When they were asked, when he was asked, what's the greatest law that you need to follow to be a Satanist? It was simply this. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In other words, do whatever you want. And you're following Satan. Just do whatever you feel like doing. You see, Satan 
has, from the day that he fell from heaven doing it, he's been doing it his own way. And he's encouraged mankind to do it their way. And in doing that, they inadvertently follow him and following his model. As the famous song goes, I did it my way, is almost an anthem to that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Let's see what Jesus has to say about doing it our way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was, it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that there were many people in his days, and there are people exactly the same today. Man hasn't changed. Man loves to do things his way. And he'll go out of his way to actually do things his way and then justify why he's doing them that particular way. But Jesus says the wise man is the one who listens to God's words and does those things. Because the creator who, who made his creation knows what's best for the creature. And he knows how that creature needs to live in order to survive and have life. And he knows, and he's made it clear in his word, that for a being, for a human being to live properly, to have true life, the only place you can find that life is in him. Outside of God, you can't have life. So it doesn't matter what you try and do in your life to, to be religious, to be good, to build whatever you want to build in your life, whether you cherish your family, your job, your home, whatever you may spend all your affections on, all those things count for nothing if you don't have the foundation. And God's word is the foundation. You see, there are many people in this world doing all types of things they go to church, they give to the poor. They may be liked by everyone because they're so nice. They may be popular, they may be kind and generous, they may even look like very religious people and you may even look up to them and say, wow, what a fantastic Christian. But if they're doing it their way, they are lost, lost. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Hands up who believes we're in the last days. 
Oh, you must have believed in the last days. Good. Okay, well then this applies to you and me. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Now have a listen to this. Having a form of godliness. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So what do we do, Paul? From such, turn away. There are many people in this world who will act religious. There are many people in this world who stand on the podium, who, who are respected individuals in our society, who have a form of godliness. The Bible says, turn away from those sort of people. Don't follow after them. Because most of them are heading in a different direction to the direction God wants them to be in. So if we look, as we look at this chapter, this, the, the rest of this chapter today, we're talking about foundations here. We are speaking about the basis of a person's life. What is your foundation? What are the things that, that make you an individual? What gives you your identity this morning? Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, as we, as we continue looking at God's program. Revelation 11, 13 says, And at the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake was slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So that the two witnesses that were witnessing for Christ against the Antichrist were slain by the beast and they were resurrected after three and a half days. And then they were taken up into heaven and the, their enemies, the Bible said, saw them literally go up into heaven the same way Jesus was seen by his disciples just bodily going up into heaven and they were scared. At the same hour, the Bible says, now, this may be in retribution, this may be God's judgment on, on Jerusalem for what happened there, but a there was an earthquake so bad that 10% ten, well, 10 of the city fell down and killed 7,000 people as a result. And let's look at the result of that. The Bible says that the remnant, whoever was left over, were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, what does it mean? Does it mean they were all converted? Does that mean that, that they were afraid now of God and they were converted to become Christians? Well, not necessarily. Because a person can be afraid of the Almighty God, can even give Him glory, but not be saved. And you might say, how can that be? How can a person fear God, give Him glory, and not be saved? Well, Let's have a look at a little story, shall we? 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. We'll look at 
a story about the ark. Now the Philistines regarded themselves as the enemies of the Israelites and for those of you who, who, who aren't sure, the Ark of the Covenant was where the Ten Commandments were placed. It was literally a, a box that was carried around and the Ark was normally brought before the Israelites or carried with the Israelites when they were going into battle and it gave them great success because God's presence was with them. Now, the Philistines managed to capture the ark they've got the ark and they're taking it back to their hometown let's have a look and see what happens first samuel chapter 5 verse 1 and the philistines took the ark of god and brought it from ebenezer unto ashdod when the philistines took the ark of god they brought it into the house of dagon and set it by dagon now dagon was their god Dagon, they would have, they would, Dagon would have been a, a huge statue. They would have made a huge statue where they would, the priests would have offered sacrifices to him. So when they captured the ark, right, it was representative of the God of Israel. So what they wanted to do was bring this ark to their God and say, look what we've done for you. We've subdued the Israelites because of your great power, Dagon. So we're offering this thing to you so you can look at it. Now let's see what happens. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, the next morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Oh, it's a bit scary, isn't it? You go there and the next morning you're, you're, the statue of Dagon's fallen flat on his face. So they put it back up where it was. Must have been a slight earthquake overnight. They didn't, maybe, uh, who knows fell off his hinges or whatever it may have been. Verse 4. When they arose early on the morrow morning, again, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that came into Dagon's house tread on that threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them in Ashdod, and he destroyed them, and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw it, saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. Not only did, was the presence of the ark uh, destroying the, the image of their God, of their local God. You see, every community, you know how, you know how now we have religions uh, that are ethnic based? Japanese Shinto religion is, a, is an example of that. Nearly every person in the Shinto religion is Japanese. Outside of that, you won't find anyone really following Shinto because you don't really fit in. But the, in the Middle East at that time, and even now, 
they, every different type of, of group had their own God. So they worshipped their God and, and they understood that other groups of people worshipped their own gods but they accepted that each, each group, ethnic group, had their own gods they worshipped. So the thing was, if I wanted to conquer, my God had to be tougher than your God. If we wanted to conquer, it was a test of whose God was actually stronger. So when you lost the battle, it was almost proving that your God was weaker. Now, Philistines were in a bit of a bind because they conquered Israel, or they, they beaten them in a battle, they'd taken this ark back, they put it in their things, but now God, through that ark, through that the presence, his presence of that ark was actually plaguing all the area around there. They were dying because of that. And the people, if you look at verse 7, it says, And the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, and said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us. Get rid of it! Get rid of it because it's causing us all these problems. Our God isn't able to handle this thing. <laughs> he can't keep it under control. And it says, for his hand is sore upon us. It means the hand of God, the God of Israel, was angry with them and it was upon them. And they also said, upon Dagon, our God. Go, to, go down to chapter 6, verse 5, and we'll see what their priests told them to do when they tried moving it to another town and they found the same thing happening over there the priest told them wherefore ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land you see they were being plagued just as Moses was plaguing Egypt they were experiencing plagues the priest told them make images of those things the mice the plagues whatever it is okay and look what they say. And ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. What? You shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Peradventure he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. In the hope. Give him glory. Acknowledge his power. Acknowledge who he is. That he might be merciful to you. But to give God... Did they change their religion? No. They didn't change their religion. They simply acknowledged that the God of Israel had great power. You see, and this is what was happening here as well in Revelation. They were afraid of the God of Israel. They were afraid of the God of the whole earth. They acknowledged his great power because when he, when he brought those servants up to him in heaven, they were afraid. And then, with an earthquake that followed, they acknowledged that it was the God of heaven who created that earthquake. But giving God glory can mean also that it's simply a mere recognition of who God is and His sovereignty and His power. And this is exactly what was happening here. The Philistines didn't experience a conversion. They didn't become converted and say, Hmm, our God fell over. We had to pick him back up a few times. And, and when we brought over this ark, we experienced all types of problems, which our, our people, our priests weren't able to fix up, our gods weren't able to control. Hmm, maybe the God of Israel is the true God. No, they didn't do that. 
They kept their own gods and they sent the ark back. But the Bible says that the people in that position, the people, the, the people that were experiencing the earthquake in Revelation after the things were now without excuse. They were without excuse as to the power of God and who the true God was. You see, the situation here was that the Antichrist, was that the beast, was convincing people that he was the Messiah, that he is the one who God sent. He is God's representative on earth. But now he was beaten. Beaten. So the people were at excuse. His followers had no excuse anymore. You see, the problem for an individual is that they can still give glory to God without submitting to him or repenting of their sin. A person can make a phrase like, I believe in God. I believe that God created the universe. Most people will tell you that, won't they? A lot of people will say, I believe in God. I believe, I believe that, that, that he's awesome. I believe that, that, that Jesus Christ was sent to die on a cross. I believe, I believe all these things. But that person may not be at a point where they've actually repented of their sin and they've accepted it for themselves. They haven't bowed the knee to Christ. A person can believe in God, can even fear God, can believe that they will one day be judged. They can believe all those things that still might be saved. Because they've rejected the Lordship of Christ and His sovereignty over their lives. They can still refuse the sacrifice that was made on their behalf. Now, we're going to reevaluate where we are here in terms of in the passages. We are at the third woe. Do you remember what the remember there were three woes? Now there are seven trumpets that are being blown. There were seven seals originally. Then the, now we're in the middle of the or the or most of the way through the trumpets. And the last of the three trumpets are called three woes. Three of the worst things that God throws down upon the earth. Now it says in verse 14. The second woe is past, and the third woe cometh quickly. Okay, now what is the third woe? Look, look at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Alright? Is that a woe? Not for the believer. It's a woeful unbeliever. You see, one day Jesus will literally come back and claim his rightful place as the ruler of this world. For some, it will be a time of joy. For others, a time of sorrow. Because he won't come back as a lamb anymore. He will come back as a lion. We know that from Scripture. So what's the most important thing for the individual today? Well, the most important thing for the individual today is that they bow the knee to him now. Is Jesus your king now? 
as we've already seen, a person can fear God, can give Him glory, can acknowledge who He is, but not necessarily be saved because they have not allowed Him to be their King. We know that every one will eventually bow the knee to Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth is that every person in history will eventually bow the knee to Jesus. And every angel shall bow the knee to Jesus. Satan himself will bow it. The question is whether you bow the knee, whether you get on your knees uh, voluntarily now, whether you accept him now as a king or whether you're going to be forced to bow the knee. Where would you rather be? Because the choice is very simple, I would say. I would rather bow the knee to him now. And it's not because I'm bowing the knee to him now because I'm forced to bow the knee to him now. It's because I understand who he is. I accept who he is. And because he's worthy to have a knee bowed to him. But eventually everyone will bow the knee. Revelation eleven sixteen. Let's see what the what the four and twenty elders do, and the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, "We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned." The four and twenty elders understand this. They understand who God is. They understand his position in this world and they fall on their faces and they thank him. They thank him for what? And it's an interesting thing that says, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power. We thank you for displaying your power. We thank you for having all this power. Yeah. You know, because power in the hands of an evil person is a terrible thing. Power in the hands of a loving, almighty God is a wonderful thing. It's wonderful that God displays his power. It's wonderful. It's fantastic that God has the power. Because you know something? If Satan had the power, we'd all be in terrible trouble. Because he neither cares, loves, understands for anyone. Apart from himself. But the God who created the universe loves, cares, has patience, has has sent his son to the cross to die for us. How much more do we want from a God who has such awesome power? He could have destroyed us all, but he didn't. Which is an amazing thing in itself. So when when the 24 elders fall on their faces and they say, We thank you, God, for who you are and for displaying your awesome power. They're saying what's right. Second lesson I want you to learn is that those who have acknowledged Jesus as their king, for those who have accepted Jesus as the king now, 
can't help but to worship and give him thanks. You can't help. When a person understands what Christ has done for them, you can't help but to give him thanks and to worship him. Can you, can you not? And if you don't, you haven't fully understood who he is and what he's done. If you understand fully what Jesus Christ has done for you, you can't help but thank him. This is what we, what we do every week in church when we get together. We simply thank God for who he is and we worship him. The word worship comes from the old English word or group of words or called worth-ship. God is worshipped because he is worthy. You see, when something is very high in value, how do you treat it? Think of the most expensive thing you have in your home. Think of the most precious thing that you own. Whether it's sentimental in value or whether it's monetary in value, how do you treat that object? Do you throw it around and kick it around? Do you, do you misuse it and neglect it? No, you don't. You actually cherish it and you, you treat it very carefully. It's like a, a, a china vase that's very precious. You don't throw it around the home. You put it in a place that you make sure that, it, that it, it's cared for and looked after and it's appreciated. Well, God is much more precious than anything we will ever have or own. Think of the most precious thing that you have in this world. What is it? Think of the most precious thing that you have in this world. Your family. Some people would say your health. Some people may say their house, their car, their career. It could be anything. The most precious thing that you have in this world should pale into insignificance. When you, when you measure the worth of that thing compared to the worth of God. Do you understand where I'm coming from? There is nothing in this world that compares to the worth of Jesus Christ. Nothing in the world. If you had to make a choice between your most valued possession, indeed all your possessions, indeed everything you have, and you had to weigh them up and, and, and choose between them or God, you know something? God should win every single time. Every single time, God should come first because He's more should be more precious to us than anything we have. It's all a matter of priority. You see, an athlete sacrifices his training. He'll sacrifice. Uh, going out and having a good time he'll make a lot of sacrifices why? because he puts value on the medal that he hopes to win at the Olympics one day that is the most precious thing to him so he sacrifices other things to have that, doesn't he? a soldier goes to war and risks his life because he believes that his life is worth less than the freedom and the country that he, that he is willing to give his life for, because possibly that country is able to give his family that freedom. And he may see the future in his country being threatened by someone else or by another country. So he's willing to sacrifice his life because he puts a higher value on his country than his own life. 
Turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came... And having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first commandment of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God, God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Why? Because God is worth it. Because God, all our affections should be on God, and everything else should pale into insignificance. It's only logical that if we put the greatest value on God, if we say that the value of God is so far above everything else, if we say the value of God is above all of His creation, is it not? Then He should be at the top of our affections. There is nothing else that should deviate our, our hearts and our minds from serving, following, adoring, admiring, worshipping, falling down before Him. There is nothing that should stop us from doing that. It's only logical. So the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Now turn to Matthew. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. And Jesus repeats it. But he repeats this thing in a slightly different way. Matthew 10, 34. Now listen very carefully at Jesus' words here. Jesus said, Think not, don't think, that I come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Who is Jesus saying he is? That we should love him more than our own families. Do we have an answer for that one? Jesus is saying that he's God himself. And there is no other, there's no higher affection that we should have than to worship and to love God. We should love God more than anyone else, anything else. Because he is worthy to be worshipped and loved. And why would there be war in a household? There's war in a house. I'll tell you why there's war in a household. Because the people in your household believe that you are at the top of the of the tree, or that they are at the top of your tree. Correct? 
they are at the top of your devotion, adoration, love. And when they find out that you then understand that your devotion and your love should be focused on the God of the universe, who is more worthy of that love, then feelings get hurt. Bitterness starts, wars begin, and anger manifests. That's why. People find their worth in being loved by other people. Do they not? If no one ever loved you, how easy would you go through life? We all want to be loved. And we find our worth a lot of times in the love that we get from other people. You see, I'm special because someone loves me. True, is it not? When that person doesn't receive the love, they no longer feel as, as special, and then things start to go wrong. But a person needs to understand that apart from loving God as their first priority, a person finds their true worth their true identity, not in the love necessarily that other people have for them, but in the love that God has for them. Because that's where the true identity lies. God showed his love to us. God showed how much he loved us individually, not just as a corporate group, but individually by sending his son to die for us individually. I find my worth, I find my peace, my joy, my hope, in his love. And you know something? If no one else ever loves me, if no one else ever cares about me, I can live with that. Don't get me wrong. I want to be loved. I want to be loved by those around me. And I want to share that love. But that love is only really shared, only really finds its true meaning when I understand the love God has for me and me loving him back. Then all the love that I have for everyone else, then all falls into place. Then I can truly love those people around me. I can truly show them because when I understand how much I'm loved, I have full confidence. What fear do I have when the God of this universe, the God who created everything, when I understand how much he loves me? You now we go through our lives sometimes continually questioning God's love for us. When something goes wrong, the first question we say is, yeah, he doesn't love me anymore. Why does he allow me to go through this and to that? When we get the things that we ask for in our prayers, we say, I'll give God the glory. When we don't get the things that we want, we start to mumble. Why? Do you find your value only in the, in the, in the prayers that you, you get answered? Does God only love you at certain times when he answers your prayers and then not love you when you don't get what you want? No. God loves you every moment of your life. He, and everything he does for us, he does because he loves us. Hard to understand sometimes. Sometimes we feel ourselves to be totally unlovable. But God nevertheless loves us. And that's the thing that changes the person from the inside. That changes from the inside when you truly understand that you don't have to go groping around everywhere to try and get love and acceptance from everyone else. When you don't need to grovel to the world for acceptance. 
you won't have to follow the world anymore. You're not bound to the world anymore. You're released because God has given you everything you need. There is nothing in this world that compares to the love of God that was found in Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to that. And when I have that, I have the most precious thing that any man can ever have. And that's the thing that changes a person's life on the inside. When I know that Jesus loves me so much that he gave his life for me, what else do I need? I've got the greatest power behind me and the greatest love behind me. Even if I die tomorrow, there is no fear. No fear in death. Verse 18. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath has come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give us give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, that thou shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Why are the nations angry? Why would the nations literally be angry? They don't want to rule. They don't want to be ruled by Christ. They're angry because they cannot accept who God is and what he's done for them. They are angry because God's wrath is finally coming down and their time is up. They are angry because they believe that they are the gods of this world. And they found out that they weren't. I want you to turn with me. We're going to close up with a, with a psalm. Psalm 2. And what I'd like to do is compare Psalm 2 with this last verse. Or verse 18. It'll help you understand this verse a lot better. Keep your finger, keep your finger in verse in Revelation eleven eighteen, because we're going to be, we're going to be going back and forth, okay? And let's let's read verse eighteen again. There we go. We're there. Revelation eleven eighteen says, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Now look at Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Why are they angry? They don't want God ruling over them. They don't want to be ruled by the God of heaven. They want to do it their way. They want to be the gods of this earth. That's why they're angry. They're raging because... They see God as a tyrant over them. Let's continue. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, 
I will de- declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. It doesn't matter how much they rage. It doesn't matter how much people fight against Jesus. God has set him up as his king. He is the king, of not only of heaven, but of this world. And they can get as angry and upset as they like. God almost laughs at that. Because one day he will send his son back to this earth to claim the rightful place on this earth as a king. Verse 9 of Psalm 2. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And that's the bottom line. Trusting Jesus. And I can trust him because I know he loves me. I can trust him because I know he has the power to fulfill every promise that he's made. I can trust him in every possible way. Now, Revelation chapter 11 finishes with verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. We'll, we'll look at this verse more detailed next week. But today is a call to become or to be a servant of the king. I used to be a romantic when I was younger. When I say romantic, I don't mean I was some sort of a... When I say romantic, I was into probably the most... my, my uh, The thing I used to love reading the most was about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. I used to love reading those books. I used to imagine myself as a knight serving under a righteous king, um, you know, fighting for truth, for, you know, with valour, with integrity, with honesty, with, with all these sorts of things. And I think a lot of uh, uh, females would have at one stage in their lives want to be taken away by a knight in shining armour. I've heard that, that uh, said a few times. Why? Because deep down we want that. You want integrity, honesty, valour. Um, you want chivalry. You want people to stand up for the truth. You know deep down that's the way the world should be. Where people fight for the truth. Where they fight for honour. Yeah? And you know, I can't think of a better a better place to be, a better position to be than to be a servant of the King of Heaven. Now, we don't necessarily see ourselves as knights in shining armour, do we? It's a bit hard to see ourselves sometimes that way. And God sees us that way. God has called us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. God sees us that way. We have been enlisted already. The question is whether we believe it in our hearts. 
today is a call to become a servant of the King, to bow a knee to the Lord of the universe, to give yourself in His service, to worship Him, to honour Him, to to thank Him and value Him above everything that's in this world. In Him we can find our hope, our peace, our love, grace, a strong foundation that nothing can shake. If you haven't bowed the knee to Him yet, why don't you do it? What's stopping you from bowing the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He is the most wonderful sovereign you could ever serve. Let me give you some of his names before we close up. And the Bible has about 200 names and titles for Jesus from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Listen to some of these wonderful names. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. He is the Lily of the Valley, the Bright and Morning Star, the Fairest of 10,000, the Spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the Bread of Life, the Chief Cornerstone, the Captain of our Salvation, the Christ, the Creator of all things. He is called Faithful and True, the Good Shepherd, the Great I Am, the Holy One of Israel. He is the image of God, the light of the world, the living water, the Lord God of hosts, the only begotten of the Father, the Redeemer of the world, the truth and wisdom of God. He is called worthy. Why do we not follow him everywhere he goes? Is there any reason not to follow him today? Is there any reason not to bow the knee to him, to believe what he's done for you and to claim him as your king? Do it if you haven't done it. Follow him today as you follow no, nothing else and no other person in your life. Is Jesus worthy enough for you to follow today? If he is, don't waste another breath. Don't waste another moment. Follow him. Follow him everywhere. Fight till the end because he's worth fighting for. Fight and don't give up. Yes, we are besieged on every side by Satan. Satan has devices that he's using against us to try to destroy the church. But you know something? Churchill gave a wonderful speech when England was, was under siege. And he said, we'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them wherever they come at us. This should be our cry too. We will fight every step of the way. doesn't matter where Satan comes against me. I'm going to fight because I have a king worth fighting for. I have been called to be an ambassador in this world and God expects me to fulfill my duties in an honourable way, in a truthful way. Let's not play around with the time we, we have. It's only short. It's silly of us to be wasting our time in this world wasting our time when people are going to hell is Jesus your king today if he is simple test for you what do your actions say what does your lifestyle say what does your heart say 